Welcome to the Pivot Fund Pod, where we hold conversations that disrupt journalism and philanthropy. My name is Zuri Berry, and what follows is a previously recorded conversation on demographic changes in the South. Specifically, more black and brown people are moving to states like Georgia and North Carolina. And given these changes, are there opportunities for publishers of color? This conversation is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and hosted by the founder of the Pivot Fund and its chief executive officer, Tracy Powell, as well as Sony Messiah Giles, the publisher of the Houston Defender, and Sierra Hinton, the executive director and publisher of Scallywag Magazine. The panelists include Dr. Maricela Martinez-Cola, a professor of sociology at Morehouse College, and Mina Theravangadam, an audience development consultant and former global head of audience engagement at Bloomberg. Maricela opens this conversation by painting a picture of the demographic changes currently underway. Thank you so much for having me. I am uh, really excited. I, I am a sociologist. Although I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a demographer, but I do definitely, a lot of the information that I received, I grabbed from uh, a variety of sources, the census, uh, the American Community Survey, uh, Pew Research Fund. So uh, I'm just going to give a really quick, hopefully, my, my hope is a five-minute overview about sort of diving into the dynamic demographics. Uh, when I was on the research, when I was on the job market, there was a code among all the universities, and they kept saying, the changing demographics of our student population. And I knew that that meant, oh, you have more black and brown students is what you're telling me, uh, without telling me. And so one of the things I just wanted to kind of share is just some of this information that we've been able to gather. So today, I'm just going to quick go over the growing Latine population, growing Asian American communities. And so hopefully we'll be able to get through this so we can have a really awesome conversation. So first, the growing Latine population. So um, these are from Pew Research. I just thought they were so incredibly helpful. If you notice here, right, uh, Hispanics, Pew use, still uses Hispanic, uh, made up more than half of the total U.S. population growth from 2010 to uh, 2020. So 51% of the growth that happened over the last decade, Hispanics make up about a, more, a little more than half of that. Okay. Some of the key facts to kind of think about, sort of the three states with the largest uh, populations are California, which I think a lot of people sort of like, well, yeah, it's California medicine, right? But if you also notice, there's Texas and Florida make up the other two, and Texas has two million. So it goes Texas, California, and then Florida. So for those who think that it's just California, Texas is far surpassing, sorry, that number. The other thing is that uh, this population is becoming increasingly multiracial. You're going to start to see this as well. And it's increased a lot since 2010. So more than 20 million Latinos identified with more than one race on the 2020 census, up from just 3 million in 2010. And the number of Latinos who identify as white and no other race has declined from 26.7 million to 12.6 million. So what does that do? That's adding kind of to this fear that the white population is diminishing, okay? Because in this particular census, they asked you first, are you Latino? And then second, they asked your race. And that became very challenging for many of us because we won't necessarily consider ourselves white. Afro-Latinos will consider themselves Black and Latino or what's called mestizaje or mestiza is a mixture, you know, of it. We talk about growing Asian American communities, all right? They're the fastest growing racial or ethnic group in the U.S. And the Asian American population grew the fastest in North and South Dakota, like, all the states and places you're seeing there, why, why that particular place? 
and there's a, a growth of industry that's there that dr draws people in. And so, as you can see, Georgia, again, North Carolina, Florida, all a lot of the southern states, they're increasing by over 100 um, percent in a lot of those places. So thank you so much. I hope I did it in five minutes. <laughs> and so if I didn't, forgive me. <laughs> No, thank you so much. That was wonderful. And context setting is always really important before we dive into these types of conversations. So uh, really grateful for you, like setting the stage for us and sharing that information. It also, you know, I know we're talking a, a lot about race as a part of this conversation and the changing demographic, but I also, you know, notice in what you said, class coming up as well and like what that means, um, especially when we're talking about gentrification, what that means for how communities are changing and how we can continue to serve, especially with our journalism, you know, our low wage workers, poor folks um, and other folks who are continue to be disenfranchised. So, you know, thank you for bringing up those intersections, not only across differences in people's race, but also where class plays a role as well. Um, and then you know, just thinking about the importance of that lens in the work that we do, um, and especially what that means for the South as, you know, the region that is, lacks the most access to wealth uh, in this country and, you know, where the po poorest folks in this country live and what that means for just, you know, how we serve our communities. Yeah, so thank you so much. And, you know, I will, Sunny, feel free. I don't know if there's anything that you want to add to that. And I know Mina is going to help us make this, tie this all together with the work that we do as publishers and in newsrooms every day and what that means for how we serve communities. Yeah. And I do have, just as an aside, I do have some really great information on use. I know I was hoping you'd be able to get to the idea of what uh, a lot of these already communities use as far as social media and publishing. And I can, again, give you that as a resource because it was just so much and I didn't quite know where to begin. So, yeah, but I will share for sure. I think to a certain degree, some of the questions that I have is what's driving the shift? You, you talked about what the numbers are, but what are some of the driving factors behind it? And then when you say what with that group changing, what are their different methods of communicating or connect social media? And then we can go to Mina, who can tell us about the strategies and how to approach those different audiences to connect. But that's to you, Dr. Verisell. Sure, absolutely. I think one of the things that has always been very true um, of the United States is jobs and avail availability of jobs and also accessibility and, uh, to being able to come into those spaces. And so the reason, one of the reasons why Texas and Florida are, are because those are port cities, right? And those are also border areas. So where, where used to be, you know, California and New York, Ellis Island and Angel Island, you know, now it's, you know, this imaginary, you know, line in the sand, right? Um, on our Southern border. And then you've got sort of Florida and all of the various ports and you really all the, the entire Gulf area. Close. There's also been, uh, been a, because it is one of the poorer areas, it also makes it the least expensive to live in. Um, I know even for myself, just to get, uh, you know, I, my, when my husband and I moved down here in 2005, we had the opportunity to either move to Chicago or move to Atlanta. And we looked at housing prices in Chicago 
and we looked at housing prices in Atlanta and we said, here we come, Atlanta. Right? And so we're able to build uh, the opportunity to build wealth um, when it comes to that, because as you know, home ownership is probably one of the biggest drivers of that. And Atlanta is very quickly, these larger cities, Miami has always been a bustling um, sort of area, but there's definitely much more sort of industry that's growing that's uh, based on, they have kind of a cute name for it. When I was living in Salt Lake City, they called them the Silicon Slopes. Uh, as far as sort of IT moving into the area, I don't really know what they're calling it here in the South, but there's definitely, it's happening here. I'm sure we're going to come up like with, you know, Southern Silicon Valley, or I don't know what, uh, because we're creative people and need to name everything. But I would say that that's happened. The other thing too, is that as people move in, you move in as families, right? So you're not just moving in one person. So, you know, a lot of the times this is very, very much akin to the great migration back in the 1950s, this idea that it was families that moved to those areas. So what you're going to see is a lot of families that move here. Again, you know, personal experience. I moved down here. My father moved down here. <laughs> My two sisters moved down here. And so I jokingly tell people I'm singularly responsible for bringing at least 15 Latinos, you know, to this uh, area in Gwinnett County. Um, so yeah, I think that, that th I would say those are really a lot of the big drivers. Labor force, fairly inexpensive, I mean, relative to other places to be able to kind of live in and greater opportunities for education and then greater opportunities for a family to live. So. Since you brought up the Great Migration, I'm wondering, have you come across like any recent research? I know I've, I've read a few news stories about sort of this reverse migration of younger Black folks in particular returning to the South. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that Atlanta in particular and North Carolina, really, again, because of the ability for young professionals to be able to come in and implement and use their degrees in, in these particular spaces. Uh, the other thing that's happening is a lot of uh, students are going to PWIs or historically white institutions, and there is a desire for them to then get as close to their community as possible. And so, you know, I, I, I was working in Utah for 30 years and I could not stay in Utah. I thought I could, I thought I could do it. And so what's happening is that there's all these companies that desperately want, you know, people of color to join them, but we're not moving to Seattle. We're not moving to Iowa. We're not moving to Idaho. We're not moving to Salt Lake City, you know, um, but I'll move to Atlanta. You know, I'll move to Raleigh, you know, and what happens there is there's also kin, you know, kin connections as well. Again, getting closer to family, how, how critical family is to that group. But I would say definitely in those opportunities, they, you know, Atlanta sort of has always been known as a, kind of the, the black mecca for young professionals here. So, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why the, the populations, there's kind of like this reverse growth that's happening. Um, Dr. Maricela, before I jump to Mina, I thought one of the questions was, could you provide that deck that you just showed? Because it was powerful as far as the information and the resource. Maybe Tracy can figure out a way to give those who attended a copy of that deck. But Mina, now we have set this setting for you. Uh, the demographic, more than demographic, is the overall shift, the great migration to the South. Different kinds of style, younger people, as far as Sierra bringing up the fact that a lot of young, the reverse migration, as you said, Sierra. And so how do we communicate with these people? We're at a critical 
Uh, I think Tracy described it as a critical crossroad of deciding, do you go with your traditional audience that you've always gone with and try to hang on, or do you shift to this new audience that is migrating into your reader demographic? Tell us how do we approach this. What are some of the strategies? Well, the first question I would ask is, does it really have to be either or, or could you find a way to do both? I think you ultimately can without alienating either party. And some people might not realize what you're doing. When I was at Yahoo Finance, there were people who were like, this is where I go for stock price quotes. And there were other people who thought it was personal finance news. And it probably took me a year to get the editorial team who thought this is all for investors. They're on their computer from 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. to realize the reason people were reading on the weekends is because people had money questions and Yahoo Finance suggests it would answer them. So I think that's the biggest thing is, is we don't have to go either or. We can be different things to different people. I like to think of it as buckets, right? Like, where are my buckets of people? What do they need from me? And how do I serve each of them? I don't really care if they're connected to the other ones. All they have to do is connect to me. That's great. And, I, and I'm curious, thinking about these buckets, especially the, the buckets that we've named around age, you know, folks who are older might be getting used to getting their news and information in one way versus folks that are younger and the different platforms and products that they're using. So how as a publisher, especially if you're a smaller publisher, maybe with less resources, how do you think about serving folks who are using products that are, are maybe very different from each other and, and, and doing both? I mean, I think the first is figuring out kind of where people are, where they tend to congregate, and then realize that it changes. Like, remember when all the kids were on Facebook and now grandma and grandpa are on Facebook and all the kids, I think they were on TikTok, but I'm pretty convinced that they have something that's so cool I haven't heard of it yet. If any of your kids will fill me in on that, I'm, I'm here for that. But I think it really, you know, it changes, but you just have to, the best thing to do is like, find the people, right? Like I have a cousin who she's now 21, but when she was 15, she was my social media advisor and everyone thought it was kind of funny. They're like, you're a head of audience development. Why do you need a social media advisor? I don't know what these kids are doing on the Instagram and they're doing it this way and they're doing it that way. And like, I'm just putting up photos, but there's a whole thing there. Find those people that are reflective of the community that you're after and willing to talk to you. I mean, I think people tend to be fairly open. We're also all journalists, right? So whether or not they want to be open with us, we can find out a lot of information. I know that you all have probably spent some time on Instagram and I've noticed that the photos have been replaced by cards, text and messages. And I see, okay, looking at those comments, I see young people are coming here for news and factual information. They got a lot of questions and they don't have answers. If I'm a publisher, I know that that is an opportunity because I have their answers. I just have to find a way to give it to them in a manner that makes sense with the platform, which is the other thing, right? Like, I think that um, you've got to figure out the language of each platform you're on. When I was at Business Insider, there was a platform called Line, really big in Southeast Asia, where we were trying to build an audience. But like, you get on there and it's like, there are no words, right? Like everybody's talking in emoji and there are stickers, there are characters, there's a backstory to the characters. I'm looking at this going, is this real? How is this the most popular app in Japan? Why is everyone in Southeast Asia on it? 
Um, so we started taking foreign exchange stories, right? Like you don't think young, hip and cool emoji people are into Forex, right? They are. This means a currency strong. This means a currency is weak. Eh. So that's kind of it. So we would take those stories and translate them into emoji and connect with that audience that way. And I'm going to tell you, like, I don't profess to be hip and cool. I didn't know really what line was when I signed up for it. But if someone like me can go in there and figure out, okay, this is how we need to approach this platform, that's basically what you're doing. You know, 101 journalism is who is my audience? Where do they congregate? And how do they communicate with one another? How do I insert myself? You know, Mina, when you bring that up of who is your audience, how do you connect with them? You're talking about oftentimes different demographics. I know like in Houston, about 10 years ago, we had Texas Southern University's marketing class to do a survey of who was picking up the newspaper. And so this was 2010, somewhere around in there. And we found out that one out of every five people was Hispanic because Hispanics lived in the neighborhoods and shopped at the grocery stores where African-Americans shopped. And so with that, we started incorporating the Hispanic athletes. We brought in soccer. We dealt with our Hispanic entertainers that had a lot of crossover. We even brought in the Hispanic politicians who shared some of the common uh, denominators as far as the issues. And we've seen that. We've grown that part of the audience. But the reality is you have the younger audience and you have this this older audience that is our traditional audience on the print side. But how do you, it's like a three-legged stool. And I want you to give me some insight into what's the best way to approach this or what are some of the techniques or strategies that you suggest in knowing that you're dealing with these different demographic groups, both age, income, and education. So I think one of the most underused tools in journalism, there are things like actually two of them, focus groups and surveys, right? Like we are nosy people. We ask a lot of questions, but we all rarely ask our audiences these questions. And they'll generally tell you, I mean, read your email box. If someone's mad at you, they'll tell you. Um, oftentimes they'll tell you the good things too. You just have to ask them. So maybe you create a survey and you send that out to your audiences. Maybe you do an in-person event and try and figure out who's into me enough where I can create a focus group, right? You will find people who care enough about the community that you serve that they too want to find a way to be a part of that mission. So I would say start with asking them. And then second, think about like, I think this is the harder part because there's like no data to show you this, um, but you want the audience that isn't yours, the one that you don't know anything about. Um, And that's the same thing here. How do you figure out what people who aren't reading you are reading about? So I would say, talk to other publishers, see what kind of trends and themes that you see emerging. Um, You know, if you pay attention to culture out there, you see certain things that emerge and you pick up on them. Um, So I think it's just really being that reporter and saying, here's what matters to them, but also knowing when you've got to step back and say, okay, not everybody cares about soccer. Not everybody cares about this. And realizing that sometimes your assumptions might be wrong. Like I think a lot of times people say, oh, young people don't care about this. And it's like, actually, they do. They just don't care about it the way you're framing it. And that's the other thing. So I think it's also how are you framing it? And are you helping people to see why this is important? 
You know, can you talk about some tools that you use to look at trends across communities or particular areas or around particular subjects? Yes. So CrowdTangle, I think, is the best tool. So I would go in and say, let me set up a list of all of my competitors, collaborators, however I want to define them. Let me see what posts are popping on their pages. CrowdTangle isn't going to give you referral traffic, but it doesn't really matter. You're going to get likes, shares, comments, which is a pretty good proxy for referral traffic. Like you will see the ones where it's like, this jerk went to jail. So yes, everybody liked it. No one clicked on it because they already know the jerk went to jail. But for the most part, they track fairly well, well enough that I would say go with it. So see what's popping that you're not covering. What themes do you see emerging that you're not paying attention to? Parsley also had this dashboard and it was like insights or something like that. Um, if any of you are Parsley users, they'll give you like a day or a week of data for free. But that's a good idea to say, what is everyone reading across the Parsley network? And what can I learn about that? Um, you know, these are going to be things that you kind of have to take to some extent, knowing I'm not going to know specific publishers. I'm not going to know specific information. But if I see that, you know, this one actor that I've never heard of is getting all the attention from everyone else, then maybe he should be on my radar. And then look at Google Trends. I think that's another one. You can go into Google Trends and you can look at specific geographies and things like that. So if you're a local publisher, you should definitely know what is my area searching for that I might be missing, especially. There's also a growing field called digital sociology. Um, and digital sociologists do an amazing job of what's called scraping big data. And so they will go and get all of this massive data from Twitter, and then they'll work with computer scientists. to It's a merging of computer science and sociology that beautifully comes together to show what is being talked about, where are, where are the clicks happening. And it's, it's just a, a really great, beautiful, growing field. A really famous digital sociologist right now is probably Tressie McMillan Fadden. She's from the South here as well, and it has a really huge following and, and is making some really great strides there. Really, if I'm a small publisher and I'm saying, how do I figure this out? There's a digital sociologist who cares enough to work with me, like find me that person. We're kind of working to the same goal. So I think like if any of you do, do that or find someone who does that, I want to know all about how you guys have a collaboration. So let me know. Look, we either get what I'm going to be doing more. Okay. <laughs> You find digital sociologists. Right. But now talk about, when you talk about a digital sociology, the question that pops into my mind is all of these apps out here, you know, you hear about neighbors and next door and what's left. Talk about the use of those apps and how they are functioning and maybe be tools for Black media or media in general to connect with these new audiences. Definitely. Um, so I think Nextdoor is one that has done pretty well with local news, right? Like at the end of the day, if someone gets mugged on my block, that is what I want to know, right? So that's really good for geographical information. I think apps as a whole is, it's kind of a hard way to look at it because an app can be so many different things. Let's think of it more as like communication. Um, I can't speak personally to like the Black community, but I can tell you as an Indian, WhatsApp is the thing. Everybody's on WhatsApp. They're family groups. Please don't tell mine that I've muted them because they're just way too active. And I can't deal with all those memes like all day long. You go away and they're like 300 messages. But 
what that shows me is, okay, these folks are communicating with this. So if I'm going after, you know, Houston has a huge South Asian population. So, you know, a year ago, when WhatsApp was a little bit easier to use, I would have said, okay, if you want to target that Asian population that you already know is picking up your newspaper, taking some liberties here, I would say start a WhatsApp newsletter or maybe start a WhatsApp group, um, something like that. And I think it's hard because the things that people use change all the time. Uh, so you want to kind of, it, it's like a constant struggle of like, how much effort do I want to put into it? knowing that people might change. I mean, like for all those people who put together their Snapchat strategies, now they're watching the rise of TikTok. That's a bit of a problem. But also, it's not just apps. I have never met anybody who uses like TikTok, but nothing else or WhatsApp, but nothing else. Everybody uses multiple things. So as long as you can get them in one of those places, that can be helpful to you too. You don't necessarily have to be everywhere to everyone, but they all do use multiple things. And you're going to be able to tell when something starts getting enough attention that you have to pay for it because we're all journalists and you know, we're all chatting. Mina, let's stay here for just a minute and, uh, and then I'll kind of turn it over for some other questions. People, longtime residents who live in, live in these communities or lived in these communities are not on WhatsApp or Nextdoor or Neighbors, all of these apps. Yet, increasingly, we see this is where the information is about the county commission meeting, the zoning meetings. All of this information appears on those apps. And so for people who want to have a bigger voice or have a voice, period, about what's happening in their communities, what, people who want to have a say in what's happening in their communities aren't on these, aren't on these apps. How do they get information? about tomorrow's zoning meeting that talks about, you know, turning a church into a mixed-use development. Where do they go get that information now if they're not on the app? Is it being published? Is it being published by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution? Is it being published by the Houston Defender? So one thing the city did in New York, this is going to sound real old school, you guys, so let me just prepare you for it. They printed out paper and stuck it up places, right? I want to say this was elections or something like that, but they had like a whole like a billboard campaign, not billboards, but if you guys have been to New York, you know that they're stuck, stuck everywhere. So they added toots, right? So they said, okay, if you're not going to be here, I know if you really care about this church and you don't want it to get rezoned into a Dunkin' Donuts, you probably walk by every now and then. So let me go ahead and put these on the fence outside the church or on the gate or on this light pole or whatever it is. And yeah, it's hard to trace that, but that's another way to have impact. And I think that that's kind of the harder thing. Some people, especially older demographics, are going to be consuming your content in a way that doesn't jive with modern measurement standards. I personally, I'm, I'm a weirdo. I totally like look over people's shoulders to see what newspaper they were reading on the subway, but there's no way to scale. You know, aside from looking at it, the apps, there's a big influx of newsletters being used now as a strategy. What do you think? Do you, one, do you think that's an effective way? And two, what are the more effective types of newsletters that media folks as from a publisher standpoint of view, should be looking at implementing. So I think newsletters are fantastic because it's a way to um, take the social media platform's power away a little bit. 
like the algorithm change isn't going to be as big of a deal if I'm coming into your inbox. However, Google can also change that with the way they're categorizing things, that they're doing tags and stuff like that. That said, almost everybody uses email nowadays. That's definitely a known way to get in touch with people. I think what you want to think about is what is the thing that everybody has? And I'm going to ask you, well, what is the thing that everybody has and everybody communicates with? And they, if you leave the house without it, you feel naked. My phone, right? Oh, text message. Yes. <laughs> and text message is easy. I mean, my 75-year-old mom can text and so can the 15-year-old cousin that the 30-something-year-old mom's text reads. So everybody texts. When you're thinking about distribution methods, and that's really what it is, whether it's social, whether it's email, whether it's an app, whether it's like whatever weird thing we'll come up with, this is distribution methods. We're basically just involving the paper woman, as I like to call her now. Um, and email was one way. So think about what's the thing, the communication method that's most ubiquitous and also easy to use. I think this is why you see subtext taking off so much is this thing, if my, you know, if there's a hurricane, I at least got a decent shot of getting plain old text messages out. Maybe I can't spend my time on my social platforms, but I can get that. And, you know, it's basic words. People can interact with them fairly easily. They're not those age um, issues. And it is a thing everybody has. Now, the next thing about text messages is we all take our phone numbers with us, right? I have had my current phone number since Washington, D.C. So if you want to build a long-term relationship with someone, get those digits. I mean, really, that's what it's all about. It's like, can you be charming enough to get those digits and worthy enough to keep them over time? What What are some of the techniques to get those digits? <laughs> well, let's see. So I definitely think that, you know, that's one where David Cohn from Subtext, he is the man to follow, DM him because he is less generous with his advice and things like that. But oftentimes it will be like, again, very old school. You have a print publication. Tell people, hey, we're launching this new text service. Sign up here for updates. Put that in print. Go where you know your readers are. Make sure that on your website, there's like a little box that says sign up here, just like email newsletter. If you've got a house ad, do it that way. If you've got a social account, every once in a while, all of your social accounts should be promoting you in all of the other places. Um, but do all of those things as well. It's really a question of how do I go where your eyeballs already are to tell you, hey, I have this new thing. And print is often the most overlooked thing. Like magazine publishers do this all the time. No one follows me on Twitter and I have a million subscribers. Have you ever put your handle on the page? Even the best handle page. The ones that do, they're the ones that find an audience based on the strength of their existing audience. And are there any services to actually help you aggregate those text, those, the text service to actually implement the distribution system? What are yeah. those? Um, so there's uh, subtext, which a lot of people use because it's easy. So I think Texas Tribune, when everything froze and just, yeah, all of that happened in February, they went to subtext because they're like, well, crap, nobody's got power. Uh, everyone's basically on like, let me preserve my mobile. How do we do this? And they were able to gin something up in like, I think from idea to like launch was 36 hours. So it's pretty turnkey and easy. That one and ground source are the easiest ones to use, but it's basically someone will sign up. And the way I tell people to think of it is you're basically distributing a newsletter via text message. Please don't be so worried knowing that going on someone's screen. Um, Tracy's asking about 
how do you reach sort of the audiences that don't necessarily have a voice about these issues? It's really interesting. Uh, it's something that we struggle with in sociology a lot, right? So we think that if we can create all of these studies that show you all of this evidence and data that show that it's a particular issue, that people will begin to listen. And while that information is wonderful and amazing and takes so much time and effort to get together, the things that people remember the most are the stories. So there's a battle between the qualitative and quantitative sociologists, but I can guarantee you that they can tell you the, that they read uh, Evicted by Matthew Desmond before they read the latest article in, our, you know, in the American Sociological Review, um, because that has, it's full of stories. And I think that, you know, uh, when people remember and think, you know, I, I, I don't even remember the name of it, but I remember it touched me so much that there was a, a one woman that refused to sell you know, through gentrification, you know, when, when their uh, neighborhood was getting gentrified and just, you know, that's the first time many people have ever, ever heard of eminent domain being used now. They think it's a, it's a historical relic that was used to be able to create spaces, but that's ultimately how it was taken away from her. And the idea that a lot of these older residents don't get grandfathered in, they have to end up paying the higher property taxes. And that's yet another way to kick people out of these spaces. And so they'll remember these photographs and the people and their stories. And I can throw all this data at people, but, you know, we just talked and you're going to say, you're going to remember the story of me moving to Atlanta and bringing my whole family, you know, kind of a thing. So, yeah, just wanted to kind of share that. Definitely. And I think also in person gets overlooked a lot. And it's kind of weird because I've made my career in digital media. But I will tell you, the most useful thing was when I was in Salt Lake City, Utah, doing my first ever internship for the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm a kid who moved there from Texas and I'm like, you want me to go knocking on strangers doors and get all up in their business and like, aren't these people armed? Like, how does this work? You know, but the truth is that was the best thing, right? That and being a police reporter and being like, go talk to the victims of XFAM, right? Because when you can knock on the door and you most don't want to knock on that door and you can have that conversation, that's the best skill for stuff like this because you know, for some people, you're going to have to knock on the door. And I think that's why what the city did was so important. They're like, we know we cannot measure this. We cannot prove this. There is no success story. But I can tell you, because I know my audience, someone's going to walk by and they're going to need to know this information. And I think that's the same thing. Um, and that's one reason you see so many publishers do live events, right? So it can be under the guise of an educational event. But you can also use that to say, hey, we're telling you about this thing that's really important to you. This is what we do all the time. Let us help you live a better life. You just got to get them on that first date with you. And then they're going to be, you know, on the way to that relationship. Well, I want to say thank you. This has been a really interesting, you know, engaging conversation. I wanted to kind of talk to Maricela a little bit more about her presentation. I'm thinking about how the displacement of long-time residents, right? You know, there are some stories not being told. You know, I won't, I don't, I won't give this away because it's a story that I, one of the publishers here is working on. But there's a community of folks in a place called Clarkston, Georgia. They've lived here for most of their lives, probably working on the second and third generation now. And they're being pushed out of Clarkston, which, you know, housing is becoming increasingly more and more expensive because all the newcomers coming into the Atlanta area um, and they're being pushed out to places like Gainesville, Georgia, which doesn't have, uh, you know, all the, the bike pop publishers I know of 
are kind of concentrated in Gwinnett and in, in the Atlanta area. They're not out there in, in Gainesville. And I'm I'm curious about how publishers of color not only tell those stories about those communities. And in Maricela, you may know the com- communities I'm I'm talking about, but telling those stories, but also maintaining that relationship as they are pushed further and further out of the city. Absolutely. I think that, you know, actually, it's, it's funny. I actually, I lived in Clarkson very um, briefly. And there's, you know, one of the things that it was really, really very well known for being a place where a lot of refugees lived um, and a really fairly high refugee population. Uh, there was a really uh, popular soccer team that uh, had a book, got a book deal and had their story told. Um, I was sharing the other day about this organization called Piece of Thread. So it's P-E-A-C-E. And they uh, make, they make purses. And what they do is they go and get all the extra fabric from, you know, these furniture stores that are really big here, or furniture manufacturers here in Atlanta, and they go and get all the extra fabric and then make these gorgeous purses out of it. And each purse comes with a card that tells who made it, you know, the whole thing. And so they really start to appeal to this group who's like, well, no, I can't make big change, but I can buy this purse. And it'll, you know, maybe help to be able to kind of, you know, make that change. And so the part of what's being pushed out is understanding why they're being pushed out. And there's, again, two, two really, two big reasons. One, it's cheaper to, the further out you go, the cheaper it is. You know, as I, as, as I was explaining, I, I lived in Clarkston. There's no way I could buy a house in Clarkston now. You know, um, now. I can't buy a house in Clarkston. <laughs> I live in Decula. Right. So I, I work at Morehouse and live in Decula. All right. Um, and so that's the way that kind of, you know, we were shocked when we got back here. We're, oh my goodness, the prices really did go up. Here's another thing that's driving it. Because of the pandemic, there's a really big thing. I know a lot of you journalists have probably wrote, written about is this idea of the great resignation. Right. All these people have been sitting in their homes and realizing, you know what? I don't like my coworkers or I don't like this job anymore. And they're becoming much more mobile and companies are realizing that if they're going to keep talent, they need to be able to be much more flexible. And now that we can prove that we can do it, you know, via remotely, right, that you can be able to keep those really good workers. Um, And so what's happening is all these people that are living in California, right, in this really crazy expensive state are saying, you know what, I want to move to Atlanta, back to my family. I want to move to North Carolina. And so they are selling their homes, these million-dollar homes, small, tiny homes in California, and paying cash for the houses here. I mean, I lived in Utah, and our house, we bought it at one price, sold it at another. And because of that, we're able to kind of begin to create something really nice for ourselves that we just didn't expect um, to happen. But it was, So I think that those are kind of a lot of the other things that kind of drive. It's the idea that once people can afford it, those numbers are just going to you know, really pop up. And again, looking at the, the, the uh, worker, you know, it's interesting that Gainesville is becoming a place because they were known for having a federal raid several years ago, exactly. several years ago, you know, and so there's that fear, of course, of that happening, you know, but what's happening is that they realized once that happened, the business was, was suffering. And so, you know, I, I tell people that immigration, you know, uh, immigration policy in the U.S. is basically we need you, we need you, we need you. We don't want you, we don't want you, we don't want you. Yeah. And, and it, there's cycles of that back and forth. 
And because it is a largely invisible group, that's the other thing. They're going to be hesitant to tell you their story, you know? And so that's why I think it's really also important to go to the younger group. You know, another, I tell lots of stories, but another just quick story. When I went to, when I was in kindergarten, um, I spoke Spanish where I was allowed to in Head Start and they encouraged it in Head Start. I got to kindergarten and I did it again. I spoke Spanish. They were singing a song and the teacher came and hit me on my hand with a ruler. So this is a corporal punishment. It was allowed. And she said, English only, no Spanish, right? So I told my mother and father that this is what happened to me. And I always ask my students, what do you think they did, right? And people that have grown up in the United States are like, well, they went over there and gave them a piece of their mind. And I was like, yeah, no, that's not what happened, right? Um, but you have a much younger generation now because I was raised just don't make waves, keep your head down, work hard, do what you have to do. And I have to tell you, teaching this younger generation, they're like, take me as I am. I really don't care what you say or think. And they're much, they're, they have this bravery that's just amazing. So you'll see a lot more young people who will say, yeah, I'm undocumented. Um, and this is what it is that I have to go through. And their parents are freaking out because they're like, how can you go and tell people that this is what's happening? So, I mean, I don't know if I've answered the question, but I just, it's no, complicated. No, no you, have, you have. So Sierra and Mina, I know we're coming up on time, but real quickly, can you talk a little bit about how do you, one, how do you connect with those people and tell the stories to help them understand why they're being pushed out? What, how do you tell the stories of, you know, now they're living in places like Gainesville for, because workers there, the chicken plants are in Gainesville. And so they're working in those chicken plants. Um, how do you, you know, talk to them about safety protocols and keeping themselves safe? Gainesville is a place of one of the places that where you had these major raids, ice raids. How do you talk to them about that and keeping themselves safe? And I'll stop there. I will say that from an audience perspective, the biggest thing is trust, right? Especially if I'm in a position to be fearful for whatever reason. Maybe it's that I am you know, in this relationship with a country where I'm undocumented, so I don't have that hour. You as a publisher need to gain my trust. You need to show me that you're on my side. You need to show me that you don't discount me for all of the reasons that society does. And you need to show me that you're straightforward. You need to get me to trust you and know that, you know, I'm hurt, right? Life has hurt me. And you're going to have to figure out how to heal this relationship a little bit by building trust with me. And that's hard. It takes a lot of time. It can take some nuance and personal touch. But I think oftentimes, and that's something that we're seeing now with, uh, you know, trust and credibility issues in the media, we don't always do what we need to to earn our audience's trust. And that's something that each of us does. Yeah, and I would add, um, you know, a, a way to earn trust that can... I guess sort of speed up the process is through like, you know, what I sort of call proxy trust. And that's by building partnerships with organizations, organizers, movement folks, people in community who actually already have that trust and having them sort of lend their trust and credibility to you in order to help you connect and build relationships with folks in a community. You know, thinking about workers, folks who were being evicted from their homes and dealing with other 
parts of that housing crisis. That's something that we uh, we relied very heavily on our partnerships with community organizations to reach folks through events, but also by like packaging our content in a way that we could then give it to those community organizations and the folks who are actually reaching people and having them use our journalism and provide it to the people that they're serving and working with um, and that they, you know, build these longstanding relationships, trusted relationships with. So, you know, sometimes you are directly reaching folks, but sometimes you're looking to the partnerships that you formed with other people doing the work to help you reach audiences and communities. Thank you for that. I think that's really a really great point. And maybe Scalawag can partner with the publisher in this community who's documenting that what's happening to the, the residents in, in Clarkson. Well, I want to just say thank you again and check out our website and register for or sign up for our newsletter. We'll see you next time. <laughs>